following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. For today, uh, this is the, the final week in, a, in an Advent series that we've been doing through the Christmas season. We've looked at three songs from Scripture. Three songs that point towards the coming of Jesus. We looked at Psalm 2, which points towards Jesus as the coming anointed king. We looked at last week, we looked at Mary's song in Luke 1, which talks about God's heart for the humble. He's lifted up the hungry, uh, filled the hungry with good things, sent the rich away empty. God's heart for the humble and the oppressed. This morning, we're going to look at one last song, and it's very close to Mary's song in the Bible. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn over to Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to be again. This song is very close to, to Mary's song. It's right before the story of Jesus' birth itself, but the song we're going to look at is not very well known. It's a song that's sung by a guy called Zechariah, and he's not one of the more familiar characters in the Christmas story. We don't really think of him in connection with the birth of Jesus, but he actually plays a pretty important role behind the scenes. Just to bring you up to speed briefly on Zechariah, in case you don't know who he is, uh, Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. He was a relative of Jesus somehow. We don't quite know what the connection is there. Maybe a great uncle or something like that. He had a family connection to Jesus. But he, he is the, the father of John the Baptist. And Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, uh, they were married, but they were unable to have children. And one day Zechariah was at the temple. He was a priest and he worked in the temple. And an angel visited him and said, Zechariah, you and Elizabeth are going to have a baby. And Zechariah didn't believe at least didn't believe fully at that time, the message of the angel. And so the angel caused him to be mute until the time that the child was born. He couldn't speak. And then the day came, the baby was born, and eight days later they came to name the child. And Zechariah and Elizabeth had some relatives that had very strong opinions about what the child's name should be. Some of you maybe can relate to that. And Elizabeth said, no, his name will be John. And so the relatives made all these signs to try and communicate with Zechariah, what's his name going to be, and Zechariah took out a tablet, it's the old tablet, not the new kind of tablet, uh, a, a stone tablet, and he wrote, yeah, I don't know what edition, he, he wrote on that tablet, his name is John, and as soon as he wrote that, his mouth was open, his tongue was loosed, and he wrote, the, he, he said these words, we, we've captured them here in Luke chapter 1, Luke has written them down, and let's read this. Um, from verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then he talks about his son, John. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and, to, and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. 
Traditionally, the song is called the Benedictus. It's not really a song. It's more of a prayer that Zechariah prayed. I, I doubt that he suddenly burst into song in the middle of this whole situation, but he prays, and that, that word Benedictus is in Latin the first word of this text in the original language of Greek of which it was written. That first word is praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. And, and it's not just a personal praise song for Zechariah. This is not just praising God because he's been good to Zechariah in giving him a son. This is a song of national praise on behalf of the whole people of Israel. Praise be to the God, the Lord of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Literally, that phrase says, he has visited his people. He's visited us to redeem us. The song taps into so many of the national hopes and longings of Israel at the time of Jesus. At the time of Jesus in the first century, Israel was an occupied country. It was occupied by a foreign nation, a foreign empire, the Roman Empire, which had conquered Israel and was now oppressively dominating them. It was crushing Israel economically, forcing many of them to be peasants. It was crushing Israel militarily through an oppressive military presence. And it was robbing Israel of its national identity by restricting Israel's freedom in their own land. Jewish people were living in Palestine, but they were not free. They were under the boot of the Romans, and the Romans controlled everything and ruled everything with an iron fist. And so within that situation of political turmoil and economic turmoil and social turmoil, people were longing for freedom. People are longing for independence. And this song captures that spirit. This is like a William Wallace-type prayer. This is a song for freedom from tyranny, freedom from their oppressors. And Zechariah is praising God that he's finally stepping in to sort out the problem. He's finally going to rescue us from our enemies and bring us salvation. And when a Jewish person in the first century thought about their enemies, they unquestionably thought about these Roman soldiers who are stationed in every public place around the city. And the kind of salvation that they wanted was not, it wasn't a little personal salvation in my heart. It wasn't just something that exists in my soul. The salvation that they longed for was a big political national salvation from their oppressor. It was for God to deliver them as a people. And that, Zechariah believes, is what is happening now. That God's stepping in and he's finally going to free us. He's finally going to throw off the shackles of these Romans and he's going to set Israel up again as an independent, autonomous nation. And it's interesting, isn't it, reading these words in view of the situations that have unfolded this past week around the world. Think about the siege in Sydney. Think about the murder of those Pakistani children and their teacher. Think about the kids allegedly murdered in Cairns. And those situations of violence around the world bring us pretty close to the prayer of Zechariah. These words, I think, take on fresh meaning that God would rescue us from the hand of our enemies, that he would free us from those who hate us, that he would enable us to serve him without fear. Those, those lines, those words, they're as relevant today. These are the longings of people in our world. Maybe not so much here in a relatively peaceful country like New Zealand, but many, many people around the world. These are the same longings. In Zechariah's day, it was a prayer of freedom from oppression. In our day, largely, it's a prayer of freedom from terrorism, from those who would keep us in fear and those who would use violence and oppression to restrict the freedoms of others, take the lives of others. These words, I think, echo down through the centuries. 
But the Bible causes us to think deeply about who our enemies really are. And the Bible causes us to think deeply about what is the nature of this salvation that Jesus has brought. When Jesus arrived in this world, what is the deliverance that he brought? This, this song of praise that Zechariah sings is all about God bringing salvation, God bringing deliverance, God bringing redemption. What, what did that look like? Was it a political kind of redemption? Was it just a personal little salvation? What was this salvation that Jesus has brought about? I think the nature of this redemption is far greater than most of us imagine, and far greater even than what we see a lot of the time in the Christmas story itself. I want to just step away from Zechariah's prayer for a minute and take you to another passage of Scripture that gives another telling of the Christmas story. And then we're going to come back to Luke 1 again and look at Zechariah's prayer. But just for a minute, open up, flick right to the end of the Bible to the book of Revelation. What would Christmas be without a reading from Revelation? Come on. You know that you want it. Revelation chapter 12. Now this, I'm going to read a few verses here. I want, when I read these, I want you to think about this as the Christmas story. Okay, this is the nativity story. But it's the nativity story like you've never heard it before. Okay, here we go. Revelation 12 verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So I know this sounds really weird. I know this is not the Christmas story you're used to. This sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? But this is the nativity story. This is the nativity story from God's perspective. This is what was happening in heaven in the cosmic sense on the night that Jesus was born. You have this woman about to give birth. And I think that woman represents not just Mary, but the entire Jewish people. Giving, giving birth, bringing forth the Messiah. And then you have this ghastly creature, the red dragon. The red dragon represents Satan or the devil. The ultimate adversary of God, the one who stands against the plans and purposes of God. And, and when you look around the world and you see things such as we've seen this week, you see ISIS, you see the Taliban, you see individual acts of terrorism and crime. As Christians, what we need to do is see always behind that stuff to the one who is the embodiment of evil, Satan. And allow the evils and atrocities of our world to remind us of the pure evil that Satan really is, that he would orchestrate these things, that he would mastermind these things. Satan is the one who animates all evil in the world, who ultimately stands behind all forces and powers that oppose and attack God and his redemptive work on earth. So here he's pictured as a red dragon. He's not literally a red dragon, but that's the picture. And he is standing in front of this woman about to give birth, ready to devour the child. Clearly the child is Jesus, the Messiah, the one who's going to rule the nations. And Satan is pictured standing there, ready to devour this child. You might want to add a red dragon to your nativity set this year, okay? Just have the red dragon just standing there, ready to devour Jesus, because that's actually what the scriptures say is happening in, the, in the, the biggest sense. But then as soon as this child is born, he's snatched away to God and his throne. I think that points us ahead to when Jesus ascends back to heaven. But then Revelation goes on and says, 
uh, and says this a little bit further down in verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. So this is the reality. This is not a fable. This is not a fairy tale. This is actually what was happening on the night that Jesus was born. We think of Jesus, the little baby being born in a manger, meek and mild, lowly, no crying he makes, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. What was happening in heaven at that time was a massive cosmic war. A huge war. The birth of Jesus was the catalyst for a cosmic battle, the likes of which the world has never seen. So when the angels appear to the shepherds and they say, peace on earth, they then return to heaven and they start a holy war. Against Satan. I'm not talking about a political jihad. I'm talking about a holy war in heaven against Satan and his forces in the heavenly realm. Because the only way that there can be peace on earth was for there to be war in heaven. That, that's what Revelation tells us. A huge war in heaven broke out between Satan and his forces and God and his forces. So, so here's the deal. Rodney, could you just stick that picture of the red dragon up again? So on, on one hand, here's the nativity scene over here, right? So this is what's happening on earth when Jesus is born. We've got Mary and Joseph and shepherds and wise men, and that's, that's the earthly perspective. But when you think about the story, don't just picture this, but picture this. That is what's happening in the bigger scheme. That's what's happening in wide-angle vision when Jesus is born. And, and I think if we're going to be faithful to the whole biblical story, we need to allow both of those pictures to come together, that we can see the earthly and the heavenly perspective. Philip Yancey puts this beautifully in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He says, As a Christian, I believe that we live in parallel worlds. One world consists of hills and lakes and barns and politicians and shepherds watching their flocks by night. The other consists of angels and sinister forces and somewhere out there places called heaven and hell. One night in the cold and the dark, among the wrinkled hills of Bethlehem, those two worlds came together at a dramatic point of intersection. So that's the cosmic reality of the biblical story, the nativity story. That's the Christmas story in the biggest possible perspective. So when you take all of that back to Luke chapter 1, you can start to see the, the fulfillment of what Zechariah was praying so when Zechariah praises God because he is rescuing us from the hands of our enemies, that he has come to his people to redeem us, he's brought salvation from our enemies, Zechariah was thinking of the Romans. He was thinking of political salvation and deliverance. But God had something far greater in mind. It wasn't something less than that. It wasn't, it wasn't a little shriveled up version of what Zechariah, it wasn't just a personal little salvation in my heart. It wasn't any less than that, but it was far more. It was far more what God was doing through the birth of Jesus was bringing about a cosmic salvation and not just delivering us from political enemies or religious enemies or personal enemies, but delivering us from the ultimate enemy, the ultimate adversary of God who stands behind all of that. Satan, the dragon, the serpent, the accuser, the tempter, whatever name you want to give him, the ultimate enemy of God. That is who Jesus has delivered us from. That is the victory that he won. And that victory was triggered by his birth in a manger. 
Such a humble event, and yet it triggered such a massive battle, a battle that waged and raged through Jesus' life and death right through to his resurrection. And a battle that we know from Scripture, Jesus won. Not, not a battle that's got an undecided outcome, but a battle that God and his angels won through Jesus decisively, victoriously, triumphantly, especially through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. The description in Revelation is that Satan was cast, that he was, he was hurled down to the earth, he and all of his angels with him, that he lost his place in heaven, that he was dethroned, that he was disempowered, that he was conquered. That's what Jesus has done to our enemy, the devil. He's not yet destroyed. I don't know why, but God has not yet seen fit to destroy Satan completely. We're still waiting for that when Jesus returns. So he still gets to exercise some power, some agitation, some disturbance in the world. But ultimately, he's a defeated enemy. And so that's the victory that Jesus has brought about. And the result of that for us is exactly what Zechariah prays in verse 34 that we've been rescued from the hand of our enemies and we've been enabled to serve him without fear. We don't need to be afraid anymore because Jesus has come and he has won a great battle. He has won a great victory over our enemy. That theme of not being afraid is such a prevalent theme right through the story of Jesus' birth. Think about all the times that phrase, do not be afraid, appears. The angel says to Zechariah, Zechariah, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been answered. To Mary, don't be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. To Joseph, do not be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary as your wife. To the, to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. Again and again, we hear this refrain, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. I don't think it's just because these were big shining angels standing in front of people and they were scary. I think it's because this is at the heart of the Christmas story, that because Jesus has come, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid anymore. We see acts of atrocity around the world. We see violence and oppression and corruption, and in weeks like this, you just wonder if the world is spinning out of control. But the message of Christmas, the message of Christ's coming into this world is that we don't need to be afraid anymore because our adversary has been conquered. And even though we see acts of violence and terror, we know that the one who stands behind all of those things has been defeated. So when you look at the things in your life that cause you fear, when you look at the things that, that right now are causing you anxiety, it doesn't mean that we're not going to be scared sometimes. It doesn't mean we're not going to have times of natural anxiety. That, that's natural. If you were in that cafe in Sydney that, that past week, you'd be terrified, and rightly so. Fear can be a good thing in one sense. It warns us. It protects us. But because of Christ, we don't need to be dominated by fear anymore because the one who holds the power of fear has been defeated. We don't need to be enslaved to fear. You don't need to be controlled by fear anymore because Christ has come. So the things that are causing you fear, maybe something next year that's just absolutely overwhelming to you, maybe a challenge that you're facing down the line next year, you don't even want to think about it because it just knots your stomach up. Maybe a person that you fear, maybe yourself that you fear because of your own proclivity towards evil. Whatever it is that is causing us fear, we need now to allow God to pull back the curtain on those things just as he pulls back the curtain on the Christmas story to see what's really going on behind all of that. And what we see is that behind all these things that cause us fear, now 
stands Jesus. No longer the evil one, but now Christ, who has come and who has conquered the evil one. Now Jesus stands behind all those things, all those things that cause us so much fear. He stands behind them and he says, you can move into the future with confidence. You can move into your future with, with boldness and with me because I have made this universe a safe place for you to inhabit. That doesn't mean there won't be pain. That doesn't mean there won't be great struggle and great suffering. But Christ has already won. He has already secured a future for us that is one day going to be revealed, a future where God's peace will reign. The kind of future that Zechariah longed for, a future where God's shalom will cover the entire earth. There's going to be no more violence. There's going to be no more bloodshed. There's going to be no more terrorism, no more grieving, no more tears, no more sickness, no more cancer, no more crying, no more loss, no more pain. Because all the old order of things will have passed away. All things are going to be made new. Jesus is saying to you, I've already gone ahead and I've secured that future for you because I've defeated the one who's kept it from happening. I've secured that future and it's not here yet, but we're on our way. It's not here yet, but the arc of history is now pointing in that direction and the future does not belong to the evil one anymore because Christ has come. The future does not belong to your fears anymore because Christ has come. The future belongs to God and Christ is reigning until all of his enemies are placed under his feet. And that will come about one day because of that incredible future that was brought about by this baby in a manger. You don't need to be afraid. And when you look at a nativity set and you see Christ there, helpless child in a manger, you can hear the words of the angel spoken to you. Do not be afraid. Because Christ holds your future in his hands. He holds the world in his hand. He holds your life. He's sovereign over history, sovereign over your circumstances. He holds the future in his hands and he's already there in your future, welcoming you into it. One of my favorite memories from this year is uh, when I visited Israel a few months ago and we went to Bethlehem, which is now in Palestine, part of the Palestinian territories. And while we were there, we visited the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which is a site, it's a round church that recreates that scene when the angels appeared to the shepherds. There's all this natural light that pours in from above and just illuminates the room. And we sat there in a circle, and the acoustics of the church are such that when you say something or when you sing, even if you're a terrible singer, it doesn't matter because the, the sound just fills the church in a beautiful way. And so we, we sat around in a circle in the church of the nativity, and we sung a couple of Christmas carols. And one of the carols that we sung was, O Holy Night. And we sung that last Sunday. We're going to sing it again on Christmas Eve so you get another chance to hit the high notes. But you know the second verse of that song? Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is a brother. And in his name all oppression shall cease can't even say it without getting shivers down my spine. And here we are singing that as the, the, the violence between Israel and Hamas is raging in Gaza. And we're singing in his name, all oppression shall cease. And that's not a fable and it's not a naive utopian pipe dream. That is the rock solid future that Jesus Christ will bring about one day because of his birth, 
his life, his death, and his resurrection. One day, in his name, all oppression shall cease. That's the hope that should fill our souls at Christmas time. We can't just see this one scene that happened on one night on earth. That's a picture. That's a snapshot. But we've got to learn to see the bigger picture and the bigger story. When you look at a nativity set this Christmas, when you look at the one maybe in your home, or you look at the one here at church, or you catch a glimpse of one around town, allow yourself to step back from it as it were and see the much bigger picture of which that snapshot is a part. Ask God to help you see it in its cosmic dimension, the great war in heaven that begun through Christ and was won by Christ, and enable yourself to see that night in view of the whole sweeping drama of redemption that is now moving irreversibly forward to the day when Christ comes again and exercises God's loving rule over all creation. And finally, God's peace will fill the earth. Until that day, we don't need to be afraid. No matter what happens in the world around us, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what next year brings, you don't need to be afraid. Christ has come. Christ has conquered our adversary. May we serve God without fear all our days because of Christ. And may God guide our feet into the paths of peace this Christmas for Christ's sake. Let's pray. Jesus, even now there's, there's a lot of fear lurking in our hearts. There's things that are making us afraid. We think about our circumstances, our families. We think about next year. And God, there's things that stand ahead of us like giants and they do terrorize us. We look around our world, God, and sometimes all the evidence seems to point to a lost and broken and hopeless world. But Jesus, remind us that you are are on the throne. Remind us, Jesus, that you are ruling and reigning. Remind us that you hold history in your hands. Remind us that because of your arrival in this world, you now hold authority over life and death, over heaven and earth, over the past, over the present, over the future, over all things. You are king, you are sovereign, and you are Lord. And so, Jesus, we hear your words, we hear the words of the angels again this morning, spoken directly into our hearts. Do not be afraid. And for all the ways in which fear is snuck into our hearts, we ask now that you would cast out fear. Your perfect love drives away fear. Your peace drives away fear. Thank you, Jesus, that we can join Zechariah in giving you praise, in giving you a great benediction of praise because you have rescued us from our enemies. You have freed us from the hands of the one who hates us, and you have brought us such a great salvation. All praise to you, Jesus, all honor to you, and all glory to your name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.